0: All right, welcome everybody to Journey the Church here at the gathering on Wednesday night. Very grateful that you're here tonight. Thanks for everyone sitting in the back and like three people, four people sitting in the front. How are we doing tonight? We doing all right? Yeah. Wonderful. I can hardly see you back there, but it's okay. Can you hear me all right? Wonderful. Well, I want to tell you a little story I heard. I heard about a fifth grade teacher. And it was the first day of class, at a brand new group of students, a whole classroom full of fifth graders. And the teacher introduced himself, I'm Mr. So-and-so, and then he proceeded to go through the class roster, where he would read the name, and he asked all the students, when I read your name, when you hear your name read, I need you to raise your hand and say, here. And so he goes through the list, Dustin Anderson. And Dustin Anderson would raise his hand and say, here. Lowell Pumphrey, here. Uh, Who else we got? Michael Milligan on his phone. But uh, he's pulling up his Bible app. He says, here. All right. So the teacher goes through the, about three quarters of the way through the list. And then stops when he reaches a certain name. This name just jumped off the page. This name startled him, shocked him. He couldn't believe his eyes. He thought that maybe this was a joke, that someone in the administration was playing a cruel joke on him because what he saw on the page certainly could not be someone's name must have been a typo, must have been an error, said, S-H-I-T-H-E-A-D, with last name, (laughs) with last name, crop, okay? And he thought, this is not okay, this has got to be some joke. But he looked around the fifth grade classroom and realized, maybe it's someone's name. So he decides to say it out loud. He says the first name as best as he can, as he knows how to pronounce it with the last name Crop. All the students start giggling and laughing, fifth graders snickering to themselves. But a hand goes up in the back of the classroom a small Pakistani boy who says, here, and it's Shafid, thank you very much. (laughs) Bad, bad teacher, terrible mistake, but an honest one. And now many of you guys already feel very offended by what I said. You might feel like this was inappropriate to share at church, and I'm with you on that. But tonight we are going through the book of Malachi, and we're talking about bad teachers. Teachers who are offensive, teachers who don't make good decisions, teachers who are inappropriate. We continue tonight our study in the book of Malachi, and we're going to see some of these bad teachers get set straight By God. But their badness is not not an honest mistake. It's corrupt injustice and defilement to the office that they serve. Malachi is a prophet. Just to recap, he's speaking on behalf of God to the people of Judah. They've just experienced what's called the Babylonian captivity. They spent an extended amount of time in exile. There's a map that you can see on the screen that shows just where they were in present-day Iraq. But that was all in the past. Now they are since returned home. The temple's been restored. The walls of Jerusalem have been restored. And yet with it, a lackadaisical attitude of apathy has also been restored. And along with that, stingy, cold-hearted, rebellious, inattentive, immoral cynicism. Now, last week, Dustin did an awesome job about talking about how the the priests and the people were giving their leftovers to God. Sacrifices and offerings were more like three-week-old moldy casserole sprouting, sprouting new growth in the back of the fridge and less like an honor that God deserves. You've got a ribeye cut fresh from the butcher shop, but instead you're, you're giving me a three-week-old casserole? This should not be. To recap, God says in Malachi chapter one, verse 14, I will curse the cheater who has a healthy male in his flock, but who promises and sacrifices to the Lord that which is corrupt. I am truly a great king, says the Lord of heavenly forces, and my name is feared among the nations. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we read from the word of God. As we read from Malachi chapter two, verse one and two. It reads, but now this command is for you, priests. If you don't listen or intend to glorify my name, says the Lord of heavenly forces, then I will send a curse among you. Some translations might read a judgment among you. I will curse your blessings, and I mean really curse them, Because none of you intend to do it. That is glorify God's name. But God, we come before you tonight and we want to glorify and honor your name. We want to give you praise and thanks for who you are. We want to be people who who come to you with open hearts and open hands and open lives. And we ask you to do a work in our lives tonight. Teach us what it means to be your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's first talk about God's name and how God's name is a major theme in the book of Malachi. It's like a recurring motif. It's a recurring element with symbolic significance. In Malachi, it's a major theme. The priests are scolded for despising God's name, an act which they are seemingly unaware. God's name was also made impure. Through Malachi, God declares that God's name will be great because, after all, it is great and should be feared among the nations, glorified and revered. It's a source for meditation because it's awesome. All of this is in the book of Malachi, a very small book, but God's name is tied to his reputation. When God acts to preserve his name, God is upholding his own reputation. Profaning or disgracing God's name was a serious offense, and it usually happened through false worship or injustice. And so that's why we pray when we do the our father or the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy or set apart, be your name. Because we want to honor, we want to set apart, we want to bless God's name. We want to declare that God's name is holy and that God be glorified. But it sounds as if the priests of Malachi's day didn't really intend to. Here, the priests are challenged with an if-then statement from God because they aren't glorifying God's name. Verse 2, to recap, says, If you don't listen, if you don't listen or don't intend to glorify my name, says the Lord of heavenly forces, then I will send a curse or a judgment among you. I will curse your blessings, and I mean really curse them because... None of you intend to do it. Simply put, if the priests don't listen and sincerely desire to honor God in God's name, then God would curse them. He'd cut off their blessings and troubles would plague their lives. Because after all, the priests, when it comes to their livelihood, blessing was their business. And by cursing their blessings, God would render their blessings null and void. They would be out of a job, out of work. That way, God would get back at them, I guess, because they've been holding back on God. But the way that God would do this, the way that God would curse their blessings is rather colorful. It's rather imaginative and also very obscene. Verse 3a says, this is God speaking through the prophet Malachi, I am about to denounce your offspring, which is common. It's common for a curse to fall on an offspring, but check this out. I will scatter feces on your faces. The face, the feces of your festivals. I will scatter feces on your faces, the feces of your festivals. The Hebrew term here is ferresh. It's disturbingly graphic and has also been translated as dung or refuse or offal. Well, what's offal? Basically, it can refer to entrails or internal organs, stuff that gets ripped out when you're preparing a sacrifice. So basically, it can be referred to fecal matter that God's going to put on their faces or offal, these internal organs. So God will take the fecal matter or offal from their religious festivals and set up a face painting booth. (laughs) It sounds super gross. Yes, it's super gross, but it's also very purposeful. Because by God smearing the priest's faces with fecal matter or offal, guess what? The priests and also the sacrifices, these lousy sacrifices that they've been offering, they are all fit to just be thrown out. They're taken out for disposal because they are unclean. The priests themselves and their sacrifices and the offerings. Gross, I know, but it's God who's saying it. So verses 3b through 4 says, Then I will lift you up to me, and you will know that I have sent this command to you so that my covenant with Levi can continue to exist, says the Lord of heavenly forces. So this scatter feces on your faces is all a warning because God wants the covenant with Levi to continue. So first of all, who is Levi. We got to go back to Genesis. We go back even to Abraham. Abraham had a son after many years, and his name was? Thanks, Deborah. Uh, anyone else know? Isaac was Abraham's son. Isaac had two boys who were named? Jacob and Esau. Jacob had a lot of kids with a couple wives. And one of those kids was named Levi. Levi uh, later became the tribe of Levi or the Levites. Two notable characters from the tribe of Levi were in fact Moses and Aaron. Aaron happened to be the first priest. Okay, so that's Levi and his lineage there. But what's this covenant that's made with Levi? Well, it's challenging to pinpoint a specific covenant with Levi because there are a few. So which one is Malachi here referring to? I think Numbers 25 is a good place to get an idea of what the covenant with Levi is all about. It's made with the priest named Phineas. Wait a second. He's not Levi, though. His name is Phineas. His name is not Levi. Oh, but... He is. He's Aaron's grandson from the tribe of Levi. So in that regard, he is Levi. So let's do some table talk here. What I want you to do is I want you to read Numbers 25, verses 1 through 13. Read it aloud and discuss what led to the covenant and what it establishes. All right, ready, go. which is spring. All right, so we got about one more minute. All right, let's bring it back together here, finish the thought. Let's just quickly uh, recap this story. Where are we located here? Where are we located here? We're in the wilderness wanderings right here, but where, where specifically are we located? No, not here. I mean, in the Bible. Where are we located in this story that you just read? Shatim Shatim. It's suitably located, or suitably named for our present study, Shatim. And there's some bad stuff going on. There's illicit sex going on, idolatry and infidelity toward God. They're cheating on God by engaging in uh, worship of the Moabite gods and goddesses. But Phineas, the priest, cleaned house in cutting-edge. Fashion, right? He stabs uh, the the guy and the girl with the same javelin, and God actually commemorates his zeal, so much so that God establishes with Phineas here, the ancestor of Levi, a covenant, a promise, a an agreement of well being with him, his descendants for a permanent priesthood. So basically, the point is here to contrast that zeal, that that courage, that strength, that model that Phineas and Aaron and the Levites have shown since, uh, since past Levites have shown. And they're contrasting that with the current disgraceful manner that the priests who are Levites were carrying it out. In Malachi's day. Does that make sense? You have like the ancient Levites who were doing a really good job, and then you have the present Malachi's day Levites who were not doing a good job. Verse 5 says, My covenant with him, that is Levi, who represents not only Levi, but his faithful descendants like Aaron and Phinehas, this covenant involved life and peace, which I gave him, and also fear, so that he honored me he was in awe of my name the covenant that god made with levi and his descendants like moses and aaron and phinehas resulted in life and peace for them god them gave them these blessings because they respected god and they honored his name true instruction was in his mouth verse 6 says injustice wasn't found on his lips He walked with me in peace and did the right thing. He made many turn from iniquity, which is gross injustice or wickedness. This is how the priesthood should be. This is how spiritual leaders should function. Walking with God in shalom, in in peace, in uprightness, in wholeness, and turning many away from gross injustice and wickedness. True instruction, it's not about fluff. It's not just about telling people what they want to hear. It's not about saying what's easy. It's about doing the right thing, which often isn't the easy way. It's about justice and peace and doing what's right. Before uh, my lovely wife, Tara, and I started dating some years ago, I remember I dropped her off at the airport with a bunch of her friends. They were going on a vacation to Hawaii, and it was so fun. I picked them up early, early in the morning, and we drove all the way down to LAX, and they were so hyped up, and I was getting excited, and then I dropped them off, and I didn't get to go to Hawaii. I got to (laughs) drive home in traffic. But I remember... I gave her something. It was wrapped in red tissue paper. And I'm a very good present wrapper. So you can imagine just how horrible it looked. But it was wrapped in red tissue paper with tape all over it. And I said, don't open this until you get on the plane. But in this this present that I have nicely wrapped for you, you can find out a lot about me. There's actually a specific thing in here that is about me. And what did I wrap up for her? I wrapped up my very first copy of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, which happens to be one of my favorite all-time books. And it didn't take her long to pinpoint the exact quotation that was really all about me. Now, I've shared this before, but I feel like my whole role as like a teacher, as a pastor, as a human being is kind of wrapped up and found in this idea right here that J.D. Salinger writes about in The Catcher in the Rye. I feel like my goal and purpose is to be like the catcher in the rye. He says, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids, and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody. If they start to go over the cliff, I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I'd do all day. I'd just be the catcher in the rye, and now I think that that's done by speaking true instruction, like the priests of of old were supposed to do, by living in right relationship with God and doing the right thing, and also helping others along the way. Verse seven says, the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. Everyone should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger from the Lord of heavenly forces. So priests should speak true knowledge. They should be reliable sources of instruction because they're messengers from God or of God. Verse eight says, but you have turned from the path. So you priests, of Malachi's day, you aren't like the Levites, Levites of old. You aren't like Levi's faithful descendants, even though you, in fact, are Levi's descendants. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of heavenly forces. The priests of Malachi's day had deviated from the truth and their instruction. It actually caused many people to stumble, it's not just a matter of bad teaching or boring teaching, it's much more serious than that. They were actually creating obstacles that prevented people from understanding the word of God. And to cause people to stumble by your instruction in Torah, in God's word, is to so mislead them and it's meaning that people were failing to understand and keep its requirements. I mean, what worse thing could you do as a priest or a pastor or a teacher or a Bible study leader than to prevent people from understanding God's word? There's not much worse you can do. I remember uh, years ago, When a pastor of mine gave his final message, he was leaving the ministry, and he said something to the effect of, I know I taught a lot of good things, and this isn't his final message. I know I taught a lot of good things, which was true. He was a good teacher, and uh, he was a great friend. I know I taught a lot of good things, but then he said, but I might have got some things wrong. So sorry. And this was in his final message. And I thought, well, this is all news to me. I wish that, you know, earlier on, when you found out that maybe you taught something wrong, that you would have explained that you were wrong earlier on, because now I'm swimming in confusion trying to understand, well, what did you teach that was wrong? How much of it was wrong? And how does that affect my current walk of faith? That could send people, plunge them into a complete crisis of faith. And I get it. Maybe there were times when he felt ill-prepared, where he felt like perhaps even incompetent. But when spiritual leaders are ill-prepared and Not working to become more competent, they can easily become a stumbling block. But let's not just target the pastors for being ill-prepared or even incompetent because everybody's a leader in some way. In some way, you are leading people closer to God or further from by your words and by your actions. So let's talk about that. Let's do a little table talk here. How are you, by your actions and words, leading people closer to or further from God? And then secondly, what do you do daily to be prepared and competent as a leader? Ready, go. All right, about one more minute. All right, let's finish the thought, and we'll bring it back together here. You know, if the pastor or the, uh, the worship leader or the children's director, if the pastor or the worship leader or the children's director are are the only ones spiritually preparing for a Sunday or a Wednesday or all the other days of the week, the church is in serious, serious trouble. You know what I like to tell the the group, we pray before Sunday mornings, usually about like 8.35, 8.45, whenever we can get it in as soon as we're done setting up the church for Sunday morning. is What I like to tell them is, Hey, the words that you say to people today, the words that you speak and the actions that you take can be just as moving as any word spoken from the pulpit, any word spoken up here. Your word and your action, actions can be just as moving as anything that happens up here. Moving, though, in both directions. You can move people closer to God by what you say and by what you do, Or you can move people away from God, away from church, away from the community of faith by what you do and by what you say. Well, this is what God says to the stumbling blocks, the bad teachers, the priests of Malachi's day in verse 9. Moreover, That means so, or therefore, or furthermore, I have made you despised and humiliated in view of all the people, since none of you keep my ways or show respect for instruction. Since the priests had despised God, God would make the the priests despised in the eyes of the people. And this is how our passage ends. Sounds like God is the bully here. Punitive and mean. But he actually gives the priests better than they deserve. When we look back in the Old Testament at Numbers chapter 18, verse 23, this is what God says to the priests. Be careful not to treat the holy gifts, the offerings of the people of Israel as though they were common. That means don't profane them. If you do, you will die. Well, the priests were profaning the offering of the people of Israel, and death should have been the penalty, but God gives the priests better than what they deserve. Nonetheless, this is a tough passage to swallow, a tough message. It's addressed specifically to Israel's unfaithful, bad-teaching priests but it should challenge all of us to serve him with heartfelt devotion and diligence and gratitude. So don't be a stumbling block. Glorify God's name. Speak the truth and do it in love. Live in right relationship with God. Do the right thing and help others along the way. There was a a woman here on Sunday who I received an email about her and a couple weeks before she had surgery on her foot and she was in a boot. And she didn't let that stop her from coming to church and even serving in certain capacities. Her name is Carol Dreyer, if, if you know who she is. Well, then I got another email last week prior to Sunday that said, please pray for Carol. She had a spill. She tripped somehow in her house, and a door jumped out and punched her right in the face, leaving her with eighteen stitches on her head. And I'm praying for her, and I'm thinking, oh man, she just needs some like tender love and care. She needs some R and R. We'll see her in a couple weeks. I see her on Sunday morning, walking in with eighteen stitches in her head and her foot in a boot. She wasn't going to let anything be a stumbling block. But how often do we in our lives let inclement weather or a toothache or a splinter be a stumbling block in our relationship with God or even our relationship with people? In our relationships with people, what do we let get in the way? What do we let become a stumbling block, preventing us from loving and being loved and living out the mission of loving the world one person at a time. So let's not let anything be a stumbling block. Let's not be stumbling blocks as well. And let's pursue God with the faith that he has given us and the faith that he continues to provide. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the people here tonight. And this strange and tough message, Lord, but help us to love you and be diligent with heartfelt devotion. Send us out, Lord, to be people who who love you relentlessly. Help us to care deeply for people and love as you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We'll see you Sunday. Don't forget to sign up for the Night of Generosity. That's March 4th. Sign up online as soon as you can. And we'll see you on Sunday.